0: Good singing, good singing. Sounded good from where I was. I'm being mischievous now. I'm not supposed to be up here, but but here I am. Could have could have had someone else, but here I am. I I just had. Uh, I had something I I wanted to, and what I say today, you'll have heard me say things before, but I don't know if I cobble it together differently. uh, But I had something I wanted to say today. So uh, let's pray. Father, as we open your word, as we consider your truth, give us hearts that are open. Help me to teach. Help me to teach well. And, and more than that, help me to teach rightly. And Lord, give everyone discernment, and grace to hold on to what is good. And lead us into truth and guard us from error for your glory and for our edification, our building up in our faith in Christ. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, not not very long ago, um, someone I regard as a a great Christian man, uh, nearing the end of his life, was asked what one statement he would like to make to young people, particularly young people, but people he would soon be leaving behind, and he said something like this. I, I think this is exactly what he said, but it, but it's it's close if it's if it's not word perfect, but he said, knowing Christ is the only thing worth pursuing in this life. He said, knowing Christ is the only thing worth worth pursuing in this life. And and I've I, as you can imagine I've thought about that a lot. But I, I don't think I would I don't think I would say that. I don't think I would say that. Knowing Christ is the only thing worth pursuing in this life. So what what you know I I regard this person as a gr- really a truly great Christian, man, a great saint of God. So why why is it? Why would he say it? I wouldn't. Well, maybe maybe he knew Christ at a deeper level than I have ever been able to reach and that could be true or he knew something about this richness of relationship with christ that that i haven't gotten to and that and that could be and maybe he pursued christ more relentlessly more consistently more with more discipline and determination than, than i've ever been able or willing to muster up and that that could be true and maybe he knew the joys of uh of the devotional time and private you know communion with lord jesus in a way that I've never known and that could be that could be and it could also it could also be this it it could also be that if we were had a chance to sit down and talk and let's talk about it and have kind of a pull it apart more and have a more in-depth conversation in the end he wouldn't be saying anything different than I would say you know that in the end there wouldn't be any real kind of disagreement at all I you know, I, I have taught repeatedly that the most important thing about your life and mine is in the eyes of God is the state of your faith in Christ. I, I've said that. I, I hope you remember say, me saying that and, or things like that, that there's not the most important thing about God, about, about your life, my life, in the eyes of God, is our faith. I've said that. And your faith in Christ, I've said this too, but you're not going to take my word for it because I'm going to allude to Scripture here. Your faith in Christ, if you have a faith in Christ, is by far your most precious possession. More valuable than gold which perishes. No question in my mind about that at all. So maybe if... If I could have sat down and discussed it more with the great Christian who said there's nothing there, there's uh, uh, nothing worth pursuing uh, in this life other than Christ in relation with him, may, maybe we' have found we're, we're all we maybe not say things in the same way, but we're on the same page, and that that could be too. But I still wouldn't say it. I still wouldn't say that the only thing worth pursuing in this life is knowing Christ because I can't characterize life, this life that God has given to me, that God has given to you, that God has given to every person who has been given the gift of life as a state of being, in which there's only one worthy purpose, only one worthy use, only one truly valuable thing in it or activity, and, that, and that's knowing Christ. Now, now maybe I wouldn't say that because it goes hand in hand with my conception of the eternal state. Maybe that, you know, I, uh, maybe I'm colored by this thing I've come to over the years. Um, which I'm convinced derives from the Bible. I'm convinced it's not from the Bible, it's not just from me. But I've, I've come to, over the years, uh, to a conception of the eternal state that is far more than the eternal church service that's so off-putting to so many people, Christians and non-Christians alike. Yeah, I've, I've said this a dozen times. You know, we there's a little secret worry in us when we've been we sing "Amazing Grace." When we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we would first begun. And I think in the back of many people's minds, you think church is long enough the way it is, and you know we we're sitting there ten thousand years singing, and and we're not halfway done according to "Amazing Grace." And it scares people to death I, I I suspect I suspect preachers I suspect preachers for fostering this conception of uh, the eternal state you know as an, as an, as an everlasting ongoing church service kind of thing worship uh, you, you know dead rock and rollers imagine that they go to rock and roll heaven you know and, and dead golfers imagine they the golf court heaven is a golf course and uh, dead baseball players go to baseball heaven and, or Iowa, you know. And and <laughs> dead presidents go to the big presidential poker game in the sky, you know. And Eisenhower and Kennedy all sitting around. Uh, it's at least that schlocky print I've seen, and you have too probably, you know, suggest the case. There's president heaven. And, and I think in the same way, I, I suspect this, I've not studied it out or anything, but I suspect preachers, in the same way, have kind of invented this idea of heaven as nothing but a great big long worship service with perfect attendance, 100% attendance every time. And I, I and the reason I think that is because I think for some preachers, church is life, and life is church. Just like for some others, life is golf or life is politics or baseball or whatever i just have a larger view of the gift of life than that that goes beyond any one thing i i may have i'm sure i'm not like some preachers in terms of their affection for the church service but i i may have come to in, like church enjoy church <coughs> excuse me <coughs> more than the average bear you know I <coughs> I might like it more than others but you know what I've said this before too but you've heard me but I also like when it's over I mean I do. I, I like the post church meal. I like watching the golf tournament. Or the football game on TV afterwards. I also like the day off, which is my Monday, your Saturday probably. I like the day off. I like being with my family. Uh, And I've also gotten to the point where I like when the family leaves. (laughs) It's time for them to go home, you know. I like reading. I like reading things that aren't about religion. You know, I like learning. I like working on projects at the house on my day off. You know, I like doing something with my hands. You know, physical doing something with my hands. I like the, I like the tiredness of, uh, of working like that all day, rather than the tiredness just comes from being tired in your head. You know, like a lot like my job is probably yours. And it and it all all of that stuff feels like the goodness of God given life to me. And a good many of those things I mentioned and others I could have mentioned really have have very little to do with knowing Christ, you know, or knowing him better. I mean, they all derive from God, you know, I suppose I'm conscious most of the time that these are gifts of God, but they really don't have anything directly to do with knowing Christ or knowing him better and, and, and the way I, and one of the proofs of that is you know the things I've described, you know they're they're enjoyed by Christian and non-Christian alike, right? Aren't they? You know, working and resting and you know being with family and things like that. You don't have to know know Christ to enjoy those things. He makes his reign. God makes his reign fall on the just and the unjust, right? So the unjust people outside of Christ, people that don't know Christ at all, enjoy the good gifts of God in life. And the the real capital F future that I see in the Bible includes all of that stuff every goodness of life we know now without the ravaging effects of sin and death those those terrible and dreadful robbers of life and so the eternal state for you and i and you and me and all who are in Christ, is not, the way I see it, is not some unimaginable heaven somewhere way out there beyond where the Hubble telescope can see, but something that the Bible calls the new heaven and the new earth, which features a redeemed earth, a place where life is, is rich and has a rich and diverse Rhythm to it, a place with, with, with seasons that do not depart, and holidays, and work, and rest, and worship. Yes, worship. But there also play, and eating, and drinking, and coming, and going, and visiting, and creativity. And, and so maybe because that has been so you know i'm so convinced about that that maybe that's what makes me a little uncomfortable with the idea that you know that saying knowing christ is the only thing worth pursuing in this life long before long before i uh Lost my health in a more general sense, you know. <laughs> uh, years ago, now really, decades ago, I lost my my wheels, my legs, my knees, my ankles, uh, I, I, the ability to run. Now, I, I never was one just to run. I know there are people like that that just run to run, and they get enjoyment out of it. I don't get it. I never was like that. But I could chase a basketball for two or three hours solid. And man, that was living. I mean, just the mental release of just being so, you know, focused on this, playing this game as well as you can play it. It was just, it was just fantastic. Or... Running down a long fly ball on a baseball or softball field. Oh man, I just that was fantastic. I, I, trash talking in the dugout. And it's trash talking. I I, after if I made a good play in the outfield, I'd, I trash talk in the dugout and say my glove was uh, where triples go to die. (laughs) It's trash talking. I probably steal a double now and again. (laughs) When I could do both, hit a triple or steal a triple from somebody, catch it, you know, snag one out of the air, I, I, I think I would rather, uh, I'd rather t- catch the ball, I'd rather run the ball down and catch it than hit the triple. But I haven't been able to do either for a number of years because the wheels are gone, and I, and I miss them. And ever since that happened, life for me became a little, just a little diminished. Now, does the Bible offer me, you know, if that's my loss, you know, if that's how my life has been diminished, does the Bible offer me any hope for that diminishment? Any hope for that loss? Well, yes, it does. But the answer is not. Now, listen to me. I want to be careful here. And, and I want you to listen carefully. The answer is not. Here's what the Bible, the biblical hope for my problem there is not. Well, don't worry about that. You don't need legs to pursue the knowledge of Christ. Don't, And that's the only thing worth pursuing anyway. You don't need legs for that. That is not the hope the Bible offers. Instead, it says things like this Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Leap like a deer. I've seen deer's leap. At my best, I never could do that. Not yet, anyway. Not yet, anyway. I mean, it's not only, you know, recovery, but better? Like, the best is yet to come? In seeing and hearing and running and leaping? Boy, if that's true, maybe the only maybe the only people truly living their best life now are the damned. But sorry, I lost my wheels. Now, and I mean now, I don't just miss my, my legs working like they used to work. I miss swallowing. I miss eating. I miss digesting the way you're supposed to. I miss waking up with enough energy to do more than one thing in a day. I miss my hands working like they used to. And when basic things like that begin falling away, you realize how great a gift ordinary life is. And, and there are a lot of or, the ordinary joys of life that have not been touched in me. I've still got them. Full bore. Uh, the joy of seeing, the joy of hearing, the thinking clearly, speaking, interacting with people, remembering things, walking. Just walking. But, but eventually, for all of us, the, the, the boat springs a leak somewhere, doesn't it? We don't all, we're not on the same place for everybody, but it all springs a leak somewhere. And sin begins, yeah, I don't mean, that I, you know, it's punishment, punishment for sin, but this being in a state of sin, it begins to take those things away, doesn't it? And eventually, it takes them all. Eventually, it takes them all away. The wages of sin is what? What? Tell me. Death. The privation of life itself. All of it. Joe Bubar, who was here last week, and and we'll be again, Lord willing. He told me last year that he had told his doctor If he got a bad diagnosis of some kind, you know, something serious like cancer or something that that he would just want palliative care. Uh, He'd want to be kept out of terrible pain, but he he wouldn't want to really do much to try to extend his life. And he said he said you know I've had a he tells the doctor this he said I've had a good life I'm I'm retired. I'm basically looking for things to do now. I I think I'd just be ready to go on and be with the Lord. And and his doctor told him, he said, said, no, you wouldn't. You would not do that. You think you'd do that, but you wouldn't do that. Because the Lord hardwired you to want to live. And you would want to live. And you'd do what you needed to do. To live, because that's the way the Lord made you. That's the way He made everybody, and you're no different. And it and it rings, it, it certainly rings true to my experience as a pastor. You know, over you know over a small church, but over 25, you know, 27 years, I feel like I've seen more than my share of dying people. I mean, not as many as medical people, uh, you know, but more than my share over average. And how those dying people, how they fight to live. You see people who seem to be, they're even unconscious. And, they're, and they seem to be mustering every bit of strength they have just to draw the next breath. And then they do it again, and then they do it again, and again, and again, and again, and for days, and for weeks sometimes. And where does that drive to live come from? Why do we cling to life so tightly? I think it's because life is the gift of God And it is good. And deep down, most everybody knows it. Christian, non-Christian alike. The The tragedy is that for those who are outside of Christ, who don't know Christ, who haven't trusted Christ, all the goodness of life will be lost forever. Now, it seems to me the most common way that people live is just to go, go along enjoying the good life that God has given until our fallen condition in sin bears its inevitable fruit till the bill comes due. The way, the way Jesus put it in Luke 27 he said, he described it this way how people go through life eating and drinking, Buying and selling, planting and building, marrying and being given in marriage. Until the judgment came and took them away. What's he talking about in there? Seems to me that just people are just enjoying life in its fullness. There's nothing wrong with that, is there? Is there anything wrong with that? I mean, we know that Noah's generation, he was drawing a comparison with Noah's generation. And then we know they were steeped in sin, just like ours is. But Jesus doesn't emphasize that. He, he doesn't say they were raping and pillaging and robbing and stealing until the judgment came and took them away. No. He just emphasized that they were just enjoying the good things of life, eating and drinking, making their livings, planting gardens, Building homes, marriage, family, enjoying the good gifts of God. I don't see anything wrong with that in itself. That's got to be better. That's got to be better than in the eyes of God than those ungrateful, unhappy souls who endure their lives rather than enjoy them, and there are some of those too. When I was a property manager in Dallas, two of my tenants were uh, a married couple. John was his name, she went by Peaches, lived in a very small one-bedroom apartment. I mean very small. Not, not a such a great neighborhood either. Peaches was one of the happiest people I have ever known. Always beaming, smile, easy laugh, cheerful word. All right, she and her husband live in there in this little one-bedroom apartment, and she had a baby. Stayed in the same tiny apartment, didn't seek to move. Same Peaches, always smiling, always laughing, always with a good word. And then she became pregnant again, had twins. Now there's three, basically three babies living in this little one-bedroom apartment with a mom and dad, just like before. Now there's five people, five people living, I don't know, 800 square feet, 850 square feet, But same peaches, happy. I I, I tell you the truth, she shamed me. She shamed me. Because uh, while the conditions of my own life were far superior in a thousand ways, um, I wasn't as happy as she was. I had to, you know, I had the kind of mind. You might know someone like this that's just kind of oriented to the problems, you know, just sort of think about the problems and the hardships or the challenges. I, I had to remind myself to count my blessings, but counting my problems that was easy. It was instinctive, it came naturally. And there she was with real hardships, and she was enjoying life. Surely it's a great sin. Surely it's a great sin uh, to go through this good life as a super blessed sourpuss, right? But the tragedy that Jesus is talking about is people just like people you know, maybe like you are, more positive people, enjoying the good things of life, eating, drinking, working, taking vacations, planting gardens, marrying and giving in marriage, watching the kids grow up, the grandkids grow up, taking cool photographs, putting it on Facebook, but never stopping long enough to seriously consider that we live in a fallen world and that in the end... Sin will take it all away. One way or another. All of it. And in every case. The tragedy is in living this good life, but never having turned to Christ who came to undo the works of the devil, who came to roll away sin and death who came to give us life and give it abundantly. He He showed us that when he was here, he showed us that he could. He showed us that he would, right? He, he, and he, he did that. Thank you. How did he show us? How did he show us he could, he could give us life? Healed the sick. Restored sight to, to the blind. Hearing to the deaf, right? He took, he took people who had serious diminishments in this life, making it less than it could be, it should be, and he restored it, didn't he? He even, he even raised the dead. But all of those miracles were mere pictures. They were foreshadowings of, uh, they were signs of what ultimately he came to give us. Look at these verses, John 6. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. It's the will of God that everyone who believes in the Son of God should have life. He's the bread of life. But it's not a one course meal. You know, as, as history, as church history has gone, has developed, and as uh, church practice has developed, you know, when we take the Lord's Supper, I wonder if this hurts us a little bit in thinking about what is the life God gave to us. And we think the bread of life. I, mean, I hope you don't think of that, you know, little piece of cracker. That that's the bread of life, you know, that that's comparable to the bread of life. You know, that's the way we do it now. But, you know, and, and you know this from, from uh, Corinthians say originally it was part of a feast it's part of a banquet right and it was just a ceremony within the banquet or or, or a feast It it it's the life he comes to give is and it can't be a one-dimensional life it it can't be flattened out into merely you know quiet time with god or eternal church service or a harp and a cloud or a mental state of Christ consciousness at least it can't be that if you believe the Bible it can't be less it can't be less full than the life you have now but unlike the life we have on this side of the resurrection the life Jesus came to give is eternal can't be lost can't be forfeited can't be leaked away in dribs and drabs over the decades. I'll end by uh, stealing something from a great preacher. You'll recognize it. I have set before you today both life and death, both blessing and the curse. Choose life that you may live, which is to say, choose Jesus, who will give you everything that sin and death ever take away, and which will take away if you don't have Jesus. The only way to choose to live forever in its fullness is by choosing Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Choose Jesus and live forever.